Well, um, Amanda, and by the way, thank you, Amanda and Robbie, for that. As we'll be hearing from them again here in just a little bit. Uh, but uh, mention that we have a guest with us tonight, and it's Dick Eastman. Um, Dick is no stranger to the road. Um, he's the president of Every Home for Christ, uh, just down the road here. Uh, author of over a dozen books uh, and a personal mentor of our pastor Steve. Um, he is an overseer for the road and Dick's great pastor, as you might already know, is about prayer and he's going to be speaking about that tonight. Would you give Dick a real road welcome this evening? Thank you, thank you. Thanks so much. Well, good evening. Who's the happiest Christian here? Can I see your head? See, I always like asking that because I like to be among happy people because the joy of the Lord is our strength. And uh, first of all, I'm thankful that I remembered to be here tonight because, <laughs> you know, as you get older, well, Pastor uh, Steve and Liz celebrating their anniversary reminds me that this year my wife and I celebrate our 100th wedding anniversary. <laughs> 50 years for her, 50 years for me. That's how we add it. It's 100. <clears throat> and about four years ago or so, I was, or th or so, I was speaking to a group of, there were several thousand young people in Los Angeles at a conference. And it was kind of humorous to me because they, they, they had some kind of title in it, uh, Hearing from the Spiritual Fathers, you see. And when you get as old as I am, you, you, the next level is patriarch. Right here, it's <laughs> spiritual father. And so I said, I, I actually said, my wife and I are, in just a few weeks, are going to be celebrating our 90 uh, second wedding anniversary, and they clapped and they cheered and a standing ovation. And then you could tell there was a few looking at each other saying, he doesn't look that old. Uh, and so then I explained 46 years each, you know, then. But uh, you do, <laughs> I was thinking, you trying to remember everything. And we have such a, a, a crazy schedule. I actually just got back a day ago from uh, Bogota. Uh, in Colombia, meeting with all of our team from all over Latin America. Uh, there's about 30 leaders that were there. And, uh, and then in just a few days, my wife and I go to uh, uh, India, where the ministry actually celebrates its 50th anniversary. The ministry of Every Home for Christ was actually born in Western Canada in 1946. I'm sometimes introduced as the, uh, the founder, but I would have been a very gifted two-year-old if that had been the case, but, uh, uh, but uh, now we've had campaigns taking the gospel home by home in uh, over 200 and, uh, but now it's about 219 nations uh, throughout the world, and, and just a very quick update, this past year was a record year for us. Uh, our teams, uh, we have 4,500 or so supported workers, and then about, last year we averaged 45,000 monthly volunteers in addition to those, and they take the gospel home by home, and last year we had a record of averaging about 250,000 homes visited every single day. Now some people say, <laughs> that's not possible, but with God, how many things are possible? And so that really is happening, and, and we will be going out to India to celebrate with thousands and thousands of people that are coming together from all over India. 
But, you know, I was telling you, sometimes you, you get a little older and you start forgetting things. And I just heard a story just a couple days ago about two uh, elderly ladies uh, in their mid or late 80s. And uh, <clears throat> they could only get together a few times a week about now because they're just getting older. And, and they were playing cards. And <clears throat> right in the middle of the card game, the one old lady looked at the other one and said, you know, I am so terribly embarrassed. Uh, I, 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 I am so embarrassed, but I have forgotten your name. I don't remember who you are. And uh, look, I, just for me, would you mind telling me who you are? And her friend just stared at her for about three minutes and finally said, how soon do you need to know? <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of where I'm at tonight. Uh, <clears throat> but it is, it's a joy to share with you and and our, our office is not far from here, and you know that the Jericho Center is a place where people are coming uh, day and night, actually, for prayer. Uh, we have a, a wall of prayer where we've imported 50 ton of Jerusalem stone and have individual prayer grottos in the wall. And uh, if you want to come, a, a husband and wife to pray, or you just want to come alone or with a few friends, uh, just call ahead and reserve one of those rooms at some point. And uh, come and join us in prayer. Uh, in fact, we've been seeing real growth in that in recent months. Uh, about six months ago, I did a report for people that support us and, and uh, mentioned that we were averaging about 16 to 1,700 hours of individuals coming into the prayer grottos every month. And this summer, the number jumped to over 3,400. Uh, all, all the months of uh, the last three months, actually. And uh, so we're thankful for what God is doing in that regard. And I, I want to share tonight for a few moments on what I would simply title the impact of prayer. The impact of prayer, uh, supernatural insights from the early church. About 100 years ago, there was a contemporary of the great American evangelist, Dwight L. Moody, he was a Bible teacher by the name of uh, A.T. Pearson. Dr. A.T. Pearson had a tremendous gift of Bible teaching. I only learned something just a couple of weeks ago when I Googled A.T. Pearson, wondered if I could learn anything more about him, and found out that if you've ever heard of the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, uh, when Charles Spurgeon stepped down from the pulpit of the Metropolitan Baptist Church in London, it was A.T. Pearson that took his place. He was the one that followed Spurgeon. Uh, although uh, A.T. Pearson was an American <clears throat> Presbyterian Bible teacher, he ended up in London. And, uh, but it was A.T. Pearson who made a statement that one of the several great, great statements I've ever heard uh, regarding prayer. And he said, generally, if not uniformly, prayer is both starting point and goal to every movement in which are the elements of permanent progress. Wherever the church is aroused in the world's wickedness, arrested, somebody, somewhere, has been praying. At least breathe heavy. It won't even scare me if you say amen. Let me repeat that last part. Wherever the church is aroused and the world's wickedness arrested, somebody, somewhere, has been praying. Amen. And it's true. And I want to share with you for just a few minutes on one particular unique and powerful passage in the book of Acts as God began to move 
in sweeping ways and the challenges that the early church was facing. In fact, the disciples, the key leaders, had been arrested. And what did they do when they were facing the challenge of the authorities telling them you can't preach this gospel of Jesus any longer? And in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, it tells you what they did. This was the foundation of all their strategies. And Acts chapter 4, verse 31 says, and when they had prayed. Say that with me. And when they had prayed. They called a prayer meeting. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. And some time ago, I was just reading through that and I began to just look carefully at the different things that happened after it said and when they had prayed. And I realized there were at least seven distinct results of the prayer that happened in those moments in the early church. And, and it was supernatural. It was, it was something that was beyond the norm. In fact, uh, the word super means over and above. It means higher in quality or degree or simply more than. So if you, if you see a Target store and then you drive a little further and you see a, a super Target store, it means it's, it's beyond <laughs> what would be normally a, a Target store. Uh, natural means having a normal or usual character, not out, not out of the ordinary. And so, <clears throat> supernatural, by definition, means departing from what is usual or normal, that which transcends the laws of nature. You know, I heard another story a while back that, <clears throat> and I love this one, there was a little skinny guy, he was about five foot eight, weighed about 105 pounds, and you just expected that if a little gust of wind came, it was going to blow him right off the map. And he walked into a, a logging camp up in Oregon someplace. He asked to see the foreman. And the foreman came out finally out of a little shed and said, how can I help you? And he said, I'd like a job. And the foreman took a look at him and said, we don't need a cook. We've already got a good cook. He said, no, I'm not, I, I, I'm not a cook. He said, I'm a lumberjack. Well, <laughs> the guy just broke into laughter, looked at him. You know, he said, I eat more in your weight for breakfast every day. There's no way you are a lumberjack. He said, well, yes, I am. I'm a lumberjack. And, he, and, and then he laughed even harder. And the, and, and the little skinny guy said, well, there's an ax over there by your shed. Why don't you just give me a chance? So the, so the foreman said, okay, and nearby was a tree, maybe, one of, a young tree, you know, maybe about two, three inches thick. He said, well, let me see what you can do with that. And he picked up that axe, and I mean, in one fell swoop, whoop! He, I mean, only about four or five inches from the bottom, uh, from the ground, and whoosh, that thing just fell. And the, uh, the foreman looked at him, and th my goodness, he said, well, let's try a bigger tree. Went over to a tree that was about eight inches. He said, let me see what you can do with that. <laughs> and the little skinny guy goes, whop, whop, whop. I mean, just three times. And the foreman looked at him and said, where on earth did you learn to cut timber like that? And he said, the, the Sahara Forest. And the guy said, don't you mean the Sahara Desert? And the little skinny guy said, yeah, now. 
supernatural. It's beyond what is ordinary. And so when I look at this passage of Scripture and I see these words, when they had prayed, there are seven things that I could tack on with that expression, when they had prayed. And the first thing, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. Now, this always means something to me special because we were up, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember the, when we were in, in California, I, 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 I led a prayer retreat up in the mountains. Mammoth Mountain, I think, is the, where the ski area was. And uh, we got them all together, and we were getting ready to go into a night of prayer. And I said to the young people, now we're just going to get down on our knees, and we're going to begin to seek God. And we're going to do this for a little while individually, and, and you can even pray out loud if you want, but we're just going to do it. There was about 150 young people there. And I read the scripture, and this is not an exaggeration. I read the scripture, you know, in the book of Acts, it says in Acts 4.31, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And we're going to pray for God to shake us in his spirit. And literally, as they started to pray, you think I'm making this up, there was about a 3.5 or a 3.7 earthquake right there in Mammoth Mountain that was big enough that the whole building went... Oh, we had so many kids get saved that night. I mean, we, oh, we had revival. And they just, wow, this works, they thought. But in the paper, you know, the next day it actually said there was an earthquake there. there there's kind of two explanations for, for this. When you say, when you read, the place was shaken where they're assembled together. First of all, there, there's, it, it could be and was, I believe, a simple demonstration of the manifest presence of God. In other words, this wasn't just an, an, an analogy. The, the building really shook. It really shook when they prayed. But then when we look at it in our generation and today, it can actually be a shaking up of the status quo in order for God to begin to remove impurities from our lives and the lives of the church. In Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, you see this uh, prophetic statement made by the prophet Haggai, that I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations will come. By the way, there are scores of names of the Messiah, the Lord, in Scripture that, that are phrases. And here is one of them, the desire of all nations. That's the Lord. That's speaking of Jesus. The desire of all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory. And the glory of the present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. How many really, really believe America needs another awakening, another revival of the glory of the Lord? And that's what we're, we're all praying toward. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26, speaks of a shaking. It says, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. We've gone through shakings, all of us at different times in our walk with the Lord. We've seen economic shakings. Now we look on the news and we see what's happening in the Middle East and the uh, radical Islam and things that are taking place. In fact, in our ministry, uh, Every Home for Christ, uh, we've, been, we've just been introducing, that's why I was in Bogota with all of our leaders for the Latin American region, and we go on and, and all the, uh, the, uh, the regional people from Southeast Asia and South Asia will gather in India, and we're introducing uh, a, a, a 
a 17-step prayer mobilization plan for the nations to mobilize what we're calling a harvest prayer movement because of the sense we need more prayer than ever before because the challenges that are yet ahead in, in reaching a lost world uh, are increasing. And especially when you see some of the, 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 the dilemma that is faced in the persecution of the church in many parts of the world. And I don't know of any other solution but to pray more and to pray harder. Uh, we know we're going to have ultimate victory because we read the Bible. And we know what the Bible tells us is going to happen. And not only in Isaiah 11, but also in Habakkuk chapter 2, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Uh, Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in the whole world as a witness to all peoples, and then the end will come. How many believe the Bible? So that's going to happen, but there's going to be some challenges along the way. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And then the second impact I see is a supernatural empowerment. So first of all, it's a supernatural shaking. And then is a supernatural empowerment. And when they had prayed, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't that be interesting to be in a community of believers <laughs> where all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit? I mean, imagine. Well, in fact, you'll see what flows out of the rest of uh, of that very statement itself. Uh, Acts chapter 1-8, when Jesus was about to ascend up into heaven. In, chapter, in Acts chapter 1-8, he said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power and will tell people about me, the New Living Translation says. You will tell people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and what the Lord is saying was just giving them the scope of the spread of the gospel. So in Jerusalem, that's right where you live. And then branching out through, throughout Judea and Samaria. And then to the very ends of the earth. The very ends of the earth. And, you know, I remember sometimes when I read passages, memories, thoughts come back of, the journey that we've been on and the places where we were. And I remember back in, oh, around 1993 and 94, we started hearing testimony from our work in central area of Africa. Now it's called the Democratic, uh, 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 let's see, the D, 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 <laughs> Democratic People's Republic or whatever it is. Uh, it used to be Zaire. And, uh, uh, but uh, we heard in the, there's two great rainforests in, in uh, uh, in Africa, the Aturi rainforest and then the equatorial rainforest. And in parts of Zaire, in the northern part, is, is the Aturi rainforest. And we heard that out of a, a, a cluster group of pygmies, of uh, about 6,000 pygmies in this one, and they're, they're all related in clans, that 1,400 of them had come to know Jesus in about a year. And it was... At that time, I was beginning to write a book on what God was doing, and I just had this longing. I, I, I want to go to that region of the world. <clears throat> and I remember seeing on, a, on a, a television talk show, just before I was to fly out uh, to, to Zaire, and then we were going to, in fact, I was initially told it was going to take <laughs> 11 days in a canoe. I thought, you know, that's a little long for me to be in a canoe. 
And then we found out that there, the ministry called Mission Aviation Fellowship have pilots, and we found one. C can you imagine that was able to take me uh, and a couple of others with me and our team up uh, into a landing on a grass landing strip by a river called the Mumboyo River up in, in the northern part of Zaire? And instead of 11 days, it was three and a half hours in the plane. I mean, this is, that's a good deal, you know. <laughs> Except we were flying through storms and it was a single-engine plane and, <laughs> and literally hail at one point bouncing off the plane and lightning there and lightning there and <laughs> you learn new ways to pray. And, <clears throat> and then it was only 14 hours. The last part of the trip on the Mumboyo River was 14 hours. But just before heading on that trip, uh, there was, I, I saw on a talk show, television talk show, a guy that had just written a book called The Hot Zone about Ebola. And I made the mistake because there was a break, an outbreak then, the first, uh, first major outbreak of Ebola that, uh, that I w w we'd, we'd ever heard about. And it was all in the news. And uh, <clears throat> I mean, that, that book described, I mean, it scared the life out of you. And, but I didn't know how close we were to the outbreak of Ebola until we were on the Mumboyo River and I had a map and just a few miles <laughs> above us was another river called the Ebola River. And that's where it got its name. So that's how close we were. <laughs> and then I, I didn't find out until after I ate monkey meat for the first time. <laughs> oh, what does it taste like? It tastes like you would imagine monkey meat would taste like. It's just like, like a, it, Ben & Jerry's actually has ice cream, you know, called Chunky Monkey. And it says made with natural ingredients. So I don't uh, particularly... Uh, I haven't really eaten that, but we, so I had, so, uh, so, now where was I? So, but it was only afterwards that I found out you could get Ebola from monkey meat, uh, but that was 15 years ago and I'm doing fine. <laughs> but, so we, w w but we heard of these, all these people coming to Jesus and the humorous part about when I first heard about the pygmies coming to Jesus, all of our reports, and we have got a wonderful database system and the reports that come in of how many homes are reached and how many people respond and then how many are discipled and then <clears throat> where there are no churches at all in many of these places and 15 or 20 people come to Jesus, we form baby fellowships, just like Acts, the, the early chapters of the book of Acts, um, people meeting in homes and places gathering together under trees. We call them Christ groups. And uh, so... We, we get the, got these reports, and I noticed that our director for that region never told how many homes were reached, and so I, I sent him a, a letter saying, my brother, we, we are so thankful for the pygmies coming to Jesus, but for our statistics, we appreciate if you'd tell us how many homes are being reached amongst the pygmies. So he, he writes back saying, well, Brother Dick, you don't understand. Pygmies don't live in homes. They live in trees. Well, of course, I thought, like, <laughs> this is funny. I remember Tarzan, you know, uh, from Tarzan movies, living up in a treehouse. So like an idiot, I write him back saying, well, even if they live in treehouses, that's still a home. Why don't you tell us how many treehouses uh, that you're reaching? And he writes back saying, you don't understand. They don't even live in treehouses. They just sleep in the trees. And, of course, we've, to we've called our ministry for years, the Every Home Crusade, and we have a motto, the last home. We won't stop until we reach the last home on earth with the gospel. So I get a letter back from him, and, uh, and he prints in big letter because Lingala and French were the two main languages, but he spoke English, and so he prints in English. He said, Brother Dick, 
we will not, he said, we have launched the every tree crusade. And he said, we will not stop until we reach the last tree on earth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And do you know, a few years later after that, we received a report that to all their evidence, all 6,000 of those pygmies in that group had now come to Jesus Christ as Savior. And so we're seeing these kind of things happen. And so when I see, oh, I I want to tell you, when it says, and, and, and you will take the gospel even to the ends of the earth. And when I got out, way out into the, this remote area, and the, I, I was told the name of this place is called Bosuka. And so I said, Bosuka. And I said, well, what does Bosuka mean? And so the interpreter turned to the pygmy, one of the pygmy leaders, and he was asking him what Bosuka means. And then the interpreter started to laugh. And he turned to me, he said, it means the end of the earth. <laughs> And so I've been there. <laughs> and but we've seen what God is doing. And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. And so the second impact is the supernatural, a supernatural empowerment. And then the third, the third impact you see in this passage. But I would preface it again. And when they had prayed, they spoke the word of God with boldness. There was such a courage that they had to give the good news of Jesus. And we are seeing this in workers all over the world that, uh, in fact, when I stand w- like with our team of workers uh, in, in, uh, in Latin America just a few days ago, and you realize what either they themselves or the teams that they have, what they go through and the places they go into, and how they minister. Uh, it's absolutely astonishing. And of course, we've, we've over the years seen so many stories. I remember a few years ago in India, hearing about 13 Hindus that had come to Jesus in a Hindu village. And one of our field evangelists went in after the, these 13 had come to Jesus to baptize them in the local river. And when each one of them came up out of the water, from being baptized, they saw their houses in flames because they were being burned to the ground because they'd given their lives to Jesus. And then I heard the testimony that the last one that was baptized came up out of the water, a a young lady, and said, I want to publicly thank God that on the very day of our baptism, we have lost everything we have for Jesus. We have, I mean, it was just, I don't even understand some of the courage that they have. And we've heard these kind of testimonies over and over in the ministry in some of these most difficult areas where people are very severely persecuted. The fourth impact is a supernatural unity. Now, and when they had prayed, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. See, it all begins, it all flows out of the prayer. And when they had prayed, these different things uh, come. And when they had prayed, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. The Message Bible that I've come to just really enjoy, in fact, this is my Bible, and my wife, she, she's upset now that it's, that it's scotch-taped <laughs> so the pages don't fall out. And someone said, well, you can send it away and get it, get it rebound. 
but it takes six weeks. And I said, I can't afford to be without my Bible for six weeks. But anyway, I love the, I love the message. And if, you, if you, you'd like to get a, into a, 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 a unique paraphrase, you'll enjoy, you'd enjoy the message. I've been in it for several years now. Uh, the message reads for this passage, the whole congregation of believers was united as one. One heart and one mind. Isn't it more enjoyable and more pleasant to be among believers that are united? I mean, don't, don't we just believe that's God's plan? He wants us to be of one heart and one soul. I remember one, one of the most remarkable stories I've ever heard about this, and I don't know if you ever, ever heard this. You, we all know about the Olympic Games. Every four years you have the best athletes in the world come together. But some years ago... Um, they began to announce the Special Olympics. The Special Olympics where they're usually held around the same time, usually after, I think, the regular Olympics, where the people have handicaps, we would say, or obviously they're challenged in various ways, some physically, some mentally. And I believe it was... Related to the 1984 Olympics that actually were in Los Angeles, if I'm not mistaken, the the, the story I'm about to tell you happened at the Special Olympics uh, during that time, <clears throat> either after, or before, whenever it was at that time, <clears throat> and there was a group of about nine young people running in like a, oh, I think it was like 50 meters or something. They were running in a race. <clears throat> And they were 16 years of age, 17, maybe even a couple of them, 18. I don't know the exact ages. But their minds were like those of a five-year-old or a six-year-old. So they were, not, they were not normal. We understand that. And so they were all lined up to run in this race, 50 meters. And they really all wanted to win. That was their desire. And, when, and, and here there, there was a crowd of thousands and thousands of people looking on at this race as it was about to begin, and the starter lifted up his pistol and said, ready, and set, and you could see, you could, you could tell by their demeanor, the way they would look at one another and the way they would smile, and that they, wouldn't, they, they, they just weren't normal athletes. You could tell that. And then when the, 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 the starter said, on your mark, get ready, you know, and fired the, the pistol, and they all started running. And you could tell <clears throat> they, they weren't running as fast as normal athletes would in any sense. But as they started to run, they only went maybe 10 or 12 meters or maybe 30, 40 feet or whatever that would be. And one of them, more, a more heavy set, a young man, stumbled. And he fell down onto the cinder track. And the way his knee hit, and just... In fact, he reacted like a four-year-old or a five- or six-year-old would in that same situation. He rolled over onto his side. His knee was just cut slightly. He grabbed a hold of it, began to just sob and cry out in pain. And the, the crowd was looking on, and they saw the most amazing thing happen. All the other runners stopped and turned and ran back to him. And they formed a circle around him, got down, and one of, the, one of the young people was patting him on the head, saying, it's okay. Another one actually bent over and kissed the wound. You know, kiss it better. 
And the whole crowd, the clock is still going, the race is still going, but they're watching all of this happen before their eyes, and what happened next absolutely stunned everybody. (laughs) The other eight kids, young people, put their hands underneath that boy and lifted him up, and they all ran the rest of the race together. And they all finished at the same time, and I understand they all got the gold medal. (laughs) They did it together. That's a picture of unity. Oh, that the Lord would let us have that kind of spirit in the church. Number five, number five is a, a, a supernatural generosity. That's giving beyond normal. And when they had prayed, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And here the message Bible reads, no one said that's mine, you can't have it. They shared everything. Oh my, imagine a church that would be like that. You know what? It's, it's being alert to people around us and the needs they have. And then... responding to those. Verse 34 in the message says, so it turned out that not a person among them was needy. Not a person among them was needy. That's a powerful picture of the early church, a supernatural generosity. And uh, over the years, I've come to meet people that have that kind of a spirit. And oh, how refreshing and encouraging it is and I know in a ministry like ours, it absolutely could not be doing what we're, what we're doing around the world without generous people. And so we thank God for them. Well, there's just a couple of more here of thoughts that I want to share. Uh, the sixth thing is a supernatural anointing. <clears throat> because it says, in, and, and if, you, if you preface this with when they had prayed, and then you look at the different things that follow, it says, you could say it this way, and when they had prayed with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. With great power, the apostles gave witness. They had an authority. They had, you know what you could call it, <clears throat> was an anointing. Now some people, how do you even define the anointing? One of the great writers on prayer... E.M. Bounds, who actually lived during the Civil War, and then he was an attorney during the Civil War, and then after the Civil War, he became, one I, I think, probably one of the greatest intercessors that I've, I've, ever, I've ever read about, and he's written, he wrote numbers of books on prayer, one of which uh, it p- profoundly impacted my, my life when I was about 21 or 22 years old and just starting in the ministry. And, and in one of his books, E.M. Bounds said this, and I I found this in a devotional. He he said, everyone knows what the freshness of the morning is like, and this is the way he said it, when orient pearls abound on every blade of grass. But who can describe it, much less produce it? Such is the mystery of spiritual anointing. We know, but we cannot tell others what it is. We call it unction or anointing. Unction is a thing that you cannot manufacture or produce. It is the anointing which gives the words of the preacher such meaning, sharpness and power, and which creates friction and stirs and revives many a dead congregation. And then he concludes, spiritual anointing is in itself priceless, beyond measure, 
if you wish to edify believers and bring sinners to God, there's something about that supernatural anointing when it comes. I remember hearing a story, a, a true story of in our own ministry in, in China. And we, we share so little. If you went on our website, you wouldn't see anything mentioned about China because of security issues. And so in a setting like this, I can say a little bit. Uh, except to tell you, it's one of our most fruitful fields in the entire world. And I remember when three ladies were going home to home in a village and came to a particular house. Three ladies came to a house and when they knocked on the door to give them the gospel, to share with them about Jesus. Because when we go home to home, we always have literature. And, 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 and in the event no one's even there, we can at least leave the printed page, often for adults and children, uh, with a clear message so they can read it and, and know who Jesus is and even have an opportunity to respond. And uh, in, in, in places like China, they'll even put their cell phone number. You know, there's over six or 700 million mobile phones now in China. <laughs> Twice as many mobile phones in China as there are people in America. And so the police can't even keep up with, track all that. They try, but so, so our workers will often write their cell phone number and say, if you, on, on the literature they give, if, if you have any questions, call. <laughs> and they do. Well, anyway, they came to this house, and when they opened the door, there was a young couple weeping, just standing there weeping. And, of course, it didn't take them long as they said, well, what's wrong to this couple? They said, well, our little boy, I think it, we st stepped on a, a rusty nail some week, days before that, and it advanced to the point what the, 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 it seemed like there was no hope whatsoever. The doctors could do nothing, and they, they thought, well, our little boy is going to die. And one of those ladies said, our Jesus can heal your little boy. Would you have the courage even to say that? You might say, well, let's pray and see what might happen. <laughs> Sometimes that's the way. But they, they said, our Jesus can heal. Well, they were, they were open to anything to happen. I mean, when you get to a point of desperation like that, they invited them in. Oh, please, yes, pray to your God, please. They prayed over that little boy, and the testimony we received was that the power of the Holy Spirit came instantly. And that little boy broke into a sweat and was totally healed in that moment. And one of the workers gave the literature. You know how easy it was to lead them to Jesus at that point? <laughs> See, we told you. And they, they led that couple to Jesus. But that's not the end of the story. About six weeks later, they got a phone call. One of the, the people that left their phone number and said, could you send us 49 Bibles and 49 lessons about Jesus? Because they told them they would send them follow-up material. And they, they said, well, why do you need 49? Because that's how many of our neighbors are now meeting in our home. And we're telling them about Jesus and they want to know more. Yeah. And that, that's what I mean by the, the power <laughs> of the Holy Spirit. With great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of Jesus. It's the anointing. Uh, yeah, I, I had another memory that came to my mind of, uh, there's a great Scottish theologian by the name of J. Sidlow Baxter. He's in heaven now. And one time, in a, a large church, I, I had the privilege of being um, on a team uh, for a mission weekend speaking. And J. Sidlow Baxter, uh, that I had heard of, I'd read his material, and, uh, and J. Sidlow Baxter was one of the speakers. Now, he was unique. I tell you, every word that he spoke seemed to be filled with power. 
But he, he was unique in this regard. He read his sermons word for word, and he had bad eyesight. <clears throat> so <clears throat> he would have his notes like this. And he would just... <clears throat> uh, I can't even get into the de depth of what he spoke on other than to say that some weeks before that, or months, he had lost his wife. I think they'd been married over 60 years. And he described the love he had for his wife and the loss of his wife. And then described how the loss of his wife brought him into a new intimacy and love of Jesus. I honestly never heard anything quite like it. But during that message, during that message, he got to speaking. Somehow he got into Hebrews chapter 7 where Jesus ever lives to make intercessor for us. And he saves us to the uttermost. Now, this part I remember distinctly because he's standing behind the pulpit and he's reading this. <laughs> he's, he's saying, oh, he saves us to the uttermost. Oh, this is what he's, his salvation is full, free, final, and forever. Oh, I can hardly stand it. I'm so happy. Oh, I'm almost beside myself. Oh, I think I'm going to do it. Oh, I hope nobody is offended, but I can't help myself. I'm so happy. Yes, I'm going to do it. And he laid his, he laid his sermon down, stepped back, and went, Hallelujah! 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 And went right back to his sermon. <laughs> that was my memory. You don't have to be spectacular to have the anointing. There was a couple guys, I mean, there was a businessman's luncheon, I heard this story some years ago, and a guy came to this business luncheon, kind of new, Christian businessman, and before the speaker got up, a couple guys near this newcomer were talking about their pastor. And they said, man, last Sunday he had the greatest anointing I think I've ever seen our pastor have. And the other one said, oh, man, I know. That was just incredible. And they were talking about the anointing for a while. So finally this newcomer sitting right there said, excuse me, I, I, don't, I don't think I understand that. What, what is the anointing? And, well, they kind of looked at each other and looked at him and said, you know, uh, I, I don't know how you'd even describe it. He said, but we have a farmer in our church. He lives outside of town. His name's Farmer Brown. He has the gift of wisdom like no one I know. I, I'm sure if you go out and, and, and see him, his farm is just outside of town there, and if you go out, and you ask him, I, I, I'm sure he can describe to you what the anointing is. And so the next day, this, this guy goes out to see Farmer Brown. He find him, finds him out in the field someplace and goes over to him and says, are you Farmer Brown? He says, yeah. And he said, do you go to such and such a church? Yeah. He said, well, I've heard that your pastor sometimes really has the anointing. He said, yeah, he, 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 he really does. Last Sunday, he really had the anointing. And so the, the guy says, well, can you explain what the anointing is? Oh, Farmer Brown thought for a minute and said, well, you know, I, he said, you see my cow over there? 
He said, yeah, I said, that, that's Bessie, my cow. She'll give you about eight or ten quarts of milk every day, but that's just normal for her. That's just being a normal good cow. Uh, see that tree over there beside, near Bessie? See that bluebird up there in the tree? Yeah. Can you hear it singing? He said, yeah, I can. He said, well, that's just normal. That's just normal for a bluebird. Bluebirds are supposed to sing like that. But now, if you can get my cow, Bessie, up in that tree singing like that bluebird, you've got the anointing. <laughs> so, there you go. Now, now you, <clears throat> I want to give you some kind of depth in my teaching so that you can take something away with you and say, well, at least he fed me. <laughs> with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Well, <clears throat> let me conclude with point number seven. And when they had prayed, great grace was upon them all. The New Living Translation reads, and God's great favor was upon them. God's favor. Of course, that's related to the word favorite, as we know. These people, in a sense, were God's favorites. I once heard someone say, if you want to get in good with God, brag on his son. That's good. <laughs> if you want to get in good with God, brag on his son. You know, it, it reminded me in Genesis, how it says in Genesis 6, 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And uh, so I, was, I looked this up in the Message Bible, and it's just simply, this is the way the Message paraphrases things. It just says, God liked what he saw in Noah. God liked what he saw in Noah. So you look back at this passage of the impact of prayer, and when they had prayed, it brings a supernatural shaking, a supernatural empowerment, a supernatural courage, a supernatural unity, a supernatural generosity. There's so much that happens, a supernatural anointing and a supernatural favor. And I want to encourage you again, I, <clears throat> first of all, even in the simplest way, to, to, to set aside time to be alone with the Lord on a daily basis. And, uh, and I, you know, there's 90, of course, 24 hours in a day, so there's, you know, four quarter hours in each hour. That's 96 15-minute periods. Surely we can give the Lord one ninety-sixth of our day. Surely, just to open up the pages of the Word and talk to Him and then watch it beginning to begin to grow in our walk with Him. And we often refer to that as a quiet time, but it's just a time to be alone with the Lord and then to get with others to pray. And just, I encourage people, of course, to have a set time every day because once you develop a habit, in fact, psychologists tell us that if you do anything ex nearly exactly the same time and in a similar way for 21 times in a row, like 21 days in a row, you, it, that, I don't know how they came up with an average like that, that, that it forms a habit, that if on the 22nd day you don't do it, you'll be saying to yourself, something's wrong, what's wrong? I'm missing something. And so it's a matter of developing a habit. And then it's just like breathing. It's just like normal. Let me conclude with something over the years that has uh, impacted my life. And it's a statement. And it's why I believe so strongly in our ministry, uh, in, in, in 
prayer being an absolute foundation. Uh, Every Home for Christ, we often refer to that the ministry is built upon three unalterable convictions. Conviction number one, that the Great Commission must be taken literally. How many agree every person on earth deserves at least one chance to know who Jesus is? And so we find strategies to do that, and that's why we go to where people live, because everyone lives someplace. The Great Commission must be taken literally. Number two, without unity, the task is impossible. No one denomination is going to win and reach the whole world. No one, strat- no one ministry is going to. We can play different parts. We need each other. So uh, without unity, the task is impossible. But, but conviction number three, prayer will remove all the obstacles that stand in the way. And that's why we mobilize prayers we do. Our executive director came to me a couple years ago, Tim Middlebrook, and he said, Dick, you know, I, I don't know that you've ever thought much about this. We, you know, we have morning prayer with the whole staff. Uh, then in the afternoon, we meet again with the whole staff. Um, <clears throat> and now we uh, encourage all the staff to set aside one entire day every two months. We call them climb the mountain days. And they go into the prayer grottos. And, uh, and uh, you know, they're still on salary. But what they do is they just take that day to be alone with the Lord. But he, and he was telling me, he said, I don't know if you're aware of this. I was adding up the amount of time that the staff spends in prayer. And it's now 20% of their work week. In other words, a double tithe of their week is spent in some way related in prayer groups or in prayer. And you know what? I can tell you what's interesting about that. I think they're producing now more uh, out of their walk with the Lord than, than even before because there's nothing we can tell that of anything that's diminished. And, and yet the Lord is doing so much more. And, I was, and the reason I, I allude to that is <clears throat> in my own life, I have felt that my calling is more, and I, I'm just telling you my heart, is more that of an intercessor than, uh, you know, I know I, I, I lead a ministry and all that, but we have a whole team that do a lot of things. But I feel closer to the heart of God's purpose in my life when I'm with people praying. And so that's just something I feel. And, and, I've, and I sometimes say this. I don't say that to be boastful. I say that to be grateful. That the Lord, how many know that God, I, I, I like to say it this way, God can do more in five minutes by accident than we can do in five years on purpose. <laughs> and so we need God in our strategies. But there's a passage of Scripture I would end with. I won't get into a great lengthy discussion in this, but when, because when you get into the book of Revelation, there's a lot of things that some kind, sometimes are confusing uh, to many. And I know they're confusing to me. We wonder, when's this going to happen? What, 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 what is John really seeing? And, <clears throat> and all the, the, sometimes the symbolism and, and what, what does all this mean? And then you come down to, well, of course, in in Revelation chapter 5, it talks about the elders and living creatures coming before the Lord with with, uh, uh, harps in one hand and bowls in the other, filled with the prayers of the saints. And, of course, some have taken that to be an interpretation of of what they call harp and bowl ministry, or uh, like I've written a book on it called Worship Saturated, uh, on Worship Saturated Prayer. Actually, the book title is Intercessor Worship, but on Worship Saturated Prayer and the impact that that has because when they brought their, their bowls and their harps before the, the lamb, then the song was sung. A new song, the Bible says, that out of every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation, the redeemed were coming. So it was a song of the harvest. And then as you go on, you get to Revelation chapter 8, where an angel comes before the throne, 
and releases. You can read this for yourself in the first six verses of Revelation chapter 8. They release all the prayers of the saints. I don't understand all that that means. But it says it's mingled with incense. The Message Bible says the incense-laced prayers of the saints rose before the throne. And then everything of the final aspects of God's mystery and plan are then unfolded after that. And so Walter Wink, the great theologian, made comments on this. Because Revelation chapter 8, oh, I have to stop and tell you. When I was in Bible college, a roommate came to me. Oh, please, ladies, now don't be offended. But he said to me, hey, Dick, there's a time when there's going to be no women in heaven. And I said, what? What do you mean no women in heaven? Yeah, look at this verse. It says, and there was silence in heaven for about the space of half an hour. So I didn't want you to, but because I didn't, I didn't, you know, he's a crazy roommate that, I hope he's living for the Lord. Anyway, <clears throat> but it does, it starts. Now, why is that significant? What have the angels been doing since their very creation, all through history, day and night, but worshiping at the throne? What has Jesus been doing, ever living, to make intercession for us? And suddenly it stops. And I was, oh, I went to a commentary once because I was very interested. Well, I wonder what causes the silence. And do you know what the commentary says? The commentary actually said, no one knows for sure what causes the silence. And I thought, well, thanks a lot. I can write commentary like that. No one knows what this means. Let's go on to something else. No one knows what it means. And as I was looking at what unfolds after that, because as soon as the the, the prayers are released at the throne, seven angels are given trumpets, and each one sounds and something happens until the seventh angel sounds with the trumpet, Revelation 11, 15, and when the seventh angel sounds with the trumpet, there's a great shout in heaven, the kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There is something that's happening in that moment because it's over. The kingdoms of this earth are now under the control of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so here's what Walter Wink says about that silence and about the prayers being released. And this is what I'll end with. Walter Wink says this so beautifully. Heaven itself falls silent. The heavenly hosts and celestial spheres suspend their ceaseless singing so that the prayers of the saints on earth can be heard. The seven angels of destiny cannot blow the signal of the next times to be until an eighth angel gathers these prayers and mingles them with incense upon the altar. Silently they rise to the nostrils of God. Human beings have interrupted the heavenly liturgy. The uninterrupted flow of consequences is damned for a moment. New alternatives become feasible. The unexpected becomes suddenly possible because God's people on earth have invoked heaven, the home of the possibles, and have been heard. What happens next happens because people prayed. The message is clear. I've got to do that to wake everybody up. The message is clear. History belongs to the intercessor. (laughs) Now, that may not excite you, but it excites me, and I'm going to go home excited. (laughs) The message is clear. And you know why it's so important about this? You may not be able to sing as beautifully as the worship team. You may not be able to teach the Bible like Pastor Steve or others. You may never write a book, 
but you can touch heaven every day. You can intervene in people's lives. Intercession is from the Latin word intercedere, which means to go between, to go into someone else's battle. And you can do that every day in the simplest way, asking the Holy Spirit to guide you. And, uh, and he will. I was just thinking just now of the British poet, Alfred Lord Tennyson, who just made the statement, more things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. Wherefore, let thy voice rise like a fountain day and night. But long before Tennyson said that, God said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 33.3, Call unto me, and I will answer you, and show you great and mighty things thou knowest not. So, thank you for letting me be a, a part of your worship time tonight. And, and let me just pray for you before I step aside. Father, thank you so much for this extraordinary gift you've given us called prayer. Lord, it's, it's something we can, we can be involved in no matter what our gifts are, no matter what our talents may be. And Lord, we can be history changers. And Lord, we can be difference makers. And so, Lord, we want to be that for your glory. So bless the road, Lord. Bless those who are coming to be nurtured and encouraged. And the days that are ahead, Lord, we pray that each one here will prosper and be in health, even as their souls prosper. And then corporately, that this body will prosper to bring you even greater glory than we could ever imagine. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.